This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the legislature today. I'm Bob Brunner. We're getting down to the wire. Major legislation is passing and being signed into law. With plenty of pomp and a bit of circumstance, Governor Jim Justice signed House Bill 2526 into law today. As Randy Yowie shows us, the tax cut bill signing marks a fiscal fanfare-making state history. A balloon drop and ain't no stopping us now played to a culture center stage full of lawmakers surrounding an ebullient state executive. Governor Jim Justice said the largest tax cut in West Virginia history would not have happened without teamwork. When absolutely everybody wins, whether it be the House, the Senate, the governor's office, all the great people of the state of West Virginia, when everybody's on the team and everybody wins, it's a great, great, great day in this state. House Bill 2526 returns over $750 million to West Virginians with a 21% personal income tax cut, a rebate of the car tax, a 50% rebate of property tax for small businesses, and tax credits to West Virginia veterans. Before and even into this legislative session, Senate President Craig Blair, a Republican from Berkeley County, was at war with justice over tax reform. After today's celebration, he said the hatchet was long buried. That teamwork's been in place for over eight years. And uh, you can see it. You can see it on the jobs that are coming to the state of West Virginia. And as you grow your tax base, it actually makes it so that you have the resources to be able to give back and spread the wealth. Will $750 million less in state revenues get West Virginia roads paved, employees paid, and all the legislated initiatives funded? Blair says years of a flat budget created more than a billion dollar surplus and continued fiscal responsibility and accounting for the needs of the state will keep finances in the black. To, to the deferred maintenances, we've got all that built in. That's why we refused on the Senate side to go to the, uh, 50 percent or 30, 40, 50. That num those numbers didn't work and still maintain the uh, moving for the state forward. You got to be able to have money to be able to invest in yourselves. But this is momentous of a $4.8 billion budget and you're giving 760 million of it back to, to, to the people. And it'll, it, it'll work. Justice said making tax cut history here has the world watching West Virginia in a different light. We're not the blunt end of the bad jokes. We are the diamond in the rough that everybody seemed to have missed. We knew how good we were. We've known it for a long, 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 long time. But again today, again today, we put our stake in the sand. 
to invite any and everyone to this great state to bring their business opportunities to us, to bring their jobs to us, to bring their folks to us. Justice says this initial tax reform puts West Virginia on a pathway toward the complete elimination of personal income tax. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yoey. With the signing of the tax cut bill, lawmakers take a significant step toward finalizing a budget. However, there are still some coronavirus relief monies yet to be appropriated and significant debate on how to use them. Chris Schultz has more. House Bill 2883 would make a supplemental appropriation of $500 million from the Coronavirus State Fiscal Recovery Fund to the Economic Development Authority. Community activists from almost a dozen organizations, including the NAACP and the ACLU, gathered Tuesday morning to call for a portion of those funds, about $300 million, to be invested into West Virginia's poorest communities. Reverend Matthew Watts of the Tuesday Morning Group has promoted an alternative application of remaining federal relief funds since before the start of the session. He and others are concerned that allocating the money to economic development doesn't meet the intent or requirements for the American Rescue Plan Act funds. So now it appears that the legislature is going to seriously entertain the governor's request uh, that $500 million of the remaining $678 million in opera dollars go into the General Economic Development Fund. And we think it's just important to bring it back to the public's attention that that was not the federal government's intention when they sent the money. They made their care in the guidelines that general economic development was not a liable expense. Watts says the spirit and intent of the federal statute was to be invested strategically in underserved and long-term marginalized disadvantaged communities. He believes that can still be done while also meeting the governor's desire for large-scale business investment. It's just a matter of them realizing it's not a zero-sum game. It does not have to be either we give all the money to out-of-state corporations for economic development or we give some money uh, to invest in the people in the places where they live. This is uh, this and that. They both can be done because with the $1.7 billion in budget surplus, with the remaining $677 million in opera dollars, there is an opportunity to do both. House Minority Leader Delegate Doug Scaff, a Democrat from Kanawha County, is the bill's co-sponsor. As the Minority Leader, Scaff has promoted several amendments to try and codify Watt's proposal for community aid from the funding. A lot of us feel like we should not put that much money into that fund. Economic development is, is what we need and what we've done. We've done a lot over the last couple of years, but we still have people in need. We have counties hurting, cities, and we have to take care of our people who are still coming back out of COVID. And we have proposed amendment after amendment uh, to take $300 million of that and put to uh, underserved uh, areas around the state. SCAP believes, like wants, that direct investment in communities is a viable form of economic development. Senate Finance Chair Senator Eric Tarr, a Republican from Putnam County, is not convinced that such a direct expenditure would be the best use of the funds. One of the things that we're really looking at with these funds that are these one-time monies, ARPA is certainly a one-time fund. Some of the surpluses we're seeing are one-time issues. The way that we, the Senate, has been characterizing those revenues is opportunities to either save money going forward or to improve the return, whether it be in jobs or whether it be in revenue that comes in the state off those investments for the operations of the state going forward. So to go out and grant it just on communities at large without addressing those two issues, which those two issues I just mentioned are nine times out of 10 job creating initiatives in West Virginia, which end up helping all these communities. And so I think it's a difference in philosophy of how you do it versus directly granting to the communities versus 
uh, teaching man the fish, so to speak, when we bring jobs into communities. As the legislative session draws to a close, Watts wants to see his proposal codified, but is hopeful the governor can still use the funds to help West Virginians. What he doesn't understand are the motivations of some legislators. I don't know how the legislators from my part of the state, the southern West Virginia coal fields, that look like a third world country that's just been devastated by war, I don't know how they can go back to their cities and to their towns, to their villages, and look the people in the eye and explain to them why they would not stand up and support our idea that some of that money came back to their counties. I don't know why they want to be here if they're not going to represent the people that sent them here. So we will see what they do uh, when it comes time for them to vote in these respective committees. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. It was Deaf Awareness Day at the legislature, an event of understanding and education for all West Virginians. Randy Yowie has that story. In the House chamber, grade schoolers from Shoals Elementary signed Country Roads, while out in the Capitol Rotunda, organizations from around the state offered enlightenment and information to all who stopped by. Sarah Lowther, project director with the State Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, says there are abundant avenues available to help integrate the deaf and hard of hearing into everyday life. We have booths that provide interpreters, so if you have a doctor's appointment, you need to go and have an interpreter, there are booths for that. We have services like technology, there's even schools here where you can learn sign language, there's a little bit of everything. Lowther says there are a few bills that will likely not make it out of committee that would help a bit with increasing entertainment enjoyment. Both of them have um, to do with captioning in movie theaters, so it's setting up captioning for certain movies certain times a week so that people who are deaf or hard of hearing can go and enjoy the movies just like everybody else does. Lowther says coal mining, drug use, genetics, other reasons play a part in West Virginia being among the national leaders in the number of people who are deaf and hard of hearing. She says a little understanding from the hearing public goes a long way. Just like any other you know, issue that you, that you have, um, everybody has their way of getting around it. Some use an interpreter, some use hearing aids, some you know, read lips. It's just all of you know, making do with what we have. Today, one of West Virginia's communities celebrated at the state capitol for the deaf and hard of hearing everywhere. For the legislature today, I'm R-A-N-D-Y Yoey. Everyone agrees that the Public Employees Insurance Agency needs some attention. Simply adding in $100 million wasn't fixing the underlying problems. Now Senate Bill 268 has passed through both chambers and is on its way to the governor's desk. He may sign it or he may let it become law without his signature because the governor said many times he would not raise the premium on his watch. Randy Yowie brings us an interview with key lawmakers explaining the changes. Thanks, Bob. Well, with me we have Deputy Speaker De Delegate Matthew Rohrbach from Cabell County and Minority Leader Doug Scaff from Kanawha County. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having All us. All right, let's talk some PEIA. There you go. Um, Delegate Rohrbach, let's start with you since you presented the bill to the House on Saturday and extended into a good three-hour debate. You spoke of a ballooning PEIA deficit. If I remember right, it was 154 million right now, maybe 422 million by 2027. You said without checks and balances, it would lead to collapse. What I wonder is how did we get to this point in the first place? Well, we got to this place over the last 12 years with uh, no premium increases whatsoever. 
and uh, this has just allowed this deficit to build up and we, we have to deal with it now because by 2027, $424 million is just not manageable in our state budget. And I remind you, that was over and above what we were currently putting in PEIA. So that's $424 million additional dollars. Delegate Scaff, I, I know that the Democratic minority spoke up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what alternatives were. And plus, I looked up today that in 2018, on March 13th, there was a PEIA task force that was formed, and they never met after 2018. Hmm. Was, is that a little problematic? I think, you know, PEIA is going to be an ongoing issue as health care costs continue to rise. I think it needs to be, and I commend uh, Delegate Rohrbach here. I know they worked countless hours throughout the summer and through the past couple of years on getting a product that we could come together to, to address this crisis, because it really was, and it was continued. We just can't happen what happened in Wheeling when the hospital decided to stop taking patients. I mean, that's when you know you've hit rock bottom. And I think we were, we were at a place where other hospitals were getting ready to make that decision if something wasn't to be done. So I commend them. And yes, we have our differences on how they got to the end product and some things that could have maybe been done differently. And we offered some of those during the floor, you know, and now you, with the 12 votes, yeah, we, we, we just spoke our piece and went on our way. I think there was 24 votes, if I'm not mistaken. 24 votes, yeah. 20, um, well, uh, let's jump ahead to the hospitals because I was going to talk about premiums, but you talked about hospitals. Uh, at one point in time, they were being reimbursed 50% on PEIA and Medicaid rates, Medicare rates, I mean, and uh, now it's 110%. I don't quite understand, though, how somebody would accept a 50% payment, you know? If, if somebody owed me money and they said, well, here's 50% worth, I don't, wouldn't like it. I don't quite understand how that worked. Well, the state got lucky for a long time that people took it, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but I think one of the big problems that prompted the decision, we had to do something now, is the access problem was getting acute. Mm -hmm. Hospitals were starting to drop. As my friend Delegate Scaff said, I don't think Wheeling was gonna be the first hospital to drop out of PEIA. Doctors left and right were dropping out. Uh, one major pharmacy chain had stopped taking PEIA prescriptions. You had a staff member, right? I had a staff member here in the house that their family doctor dropped them because they had PEIA. So we just couldn't keep going any longer because the reimbursement levels had gotten so low. Now, I might add that when we studied intently this, this issue, uh, we looked at the five surrounding states. They all pay to their providers somewhere between 150 and 180 percent of Medicare. So the provider community is still giving the state a tremendous discount but we simply, 50 cents on the Medicare dollar just was not going to continue to work. What we've got also is an 80-20 split. The state pays 80% of that hospital bill or that doctor bill and the insured pays 20%. Is that typical of insurance plans? I think it's typical for most. I mean, they, it ranges in percentage, you know, but you know, you got to remember we have a lot of employees in the state in the public employee system who they take less to do perform those jobs and so we provide them this benefit and I think the 80-20 is something we've always strived for. We thought that was a fair benefit to help compensate for maybe some of the lower salaries that they get. Because those numbers were going askew, right? Oh, the 80-20, we were currently we're at about 83-17 yeah. and we were rapidly heading to 90-10 or 89-11 by 2027. So 
And that is one of the major elements of the bill is to rebase back to 80-20 and put fiduciary responsibility on the finance board to keep us at 80-20 going forward. Uh, the, the, the spouse aspect uh, caused a lot of hue and cry. If your spouse uh, is able to be insured by a, their own employer, uh, then they wouldn't be eligible unless they paid $147 a month, unless that other spouse paid mm -hmm. into the plan. Um, so what does that save? Well, we looked at several aspects to do it. So the quick answer is the estimate is $21 million. But we looked at how other states, and we looked at private insurance plans, how do they do it? So particularly the other state plans did not have a straight across the board 80-20. So for the employee, they had an 80-20 plan. By the time you got to the family plan, it was typically about 60-40 on the premium sharing model. Now, so in essence, everybody paid more to have the family plan. What we elected to do was to keep it at 80-20 for everyone, and then for those that would need that additional coverage, it's $147 a month. The other option was to lower to 60-40, and then everybody was gonna pay more, and we didn't really think that was fair. Does that include children? Well, there's, there's three tiers. Right. Well, there's 10 salary tiers, but there's three tiers. You have employee only, employee with children, and then family coverage. So that, that you, you could have children either on the family coverage or that in, intermediate coverage, which is an employee with children. Now, Delegate Staff, Delegate Larry Rowe, mm -hmm. the, the calculator himself, <laughs> um, figured out that with this whole spouse situation, when you talk about the premium increase in $147, he came to a total of $2,400 a year that a person would have to pay extra. Now, the pay raise that's offered is $2,300 a year. That's kind of a wash, isn't it? Yeah, we just felt like, you know, it was it was kind of a wash and it was kind of like a little bit of a shell game. But, you know, I know they were faced with the challenge of what do you do? We were, we were in a crisis. What do you do? We just felt like there was a little bit of a, we called it a marriage penalty because we felt like if you were married, then, you know, you got you got penalized. And, and so we talked about that. But we get it, you know, and spouse and how you look in the private sector. But we're not the private sector. And that was one concern that we brought up. And to offset, we offset majority of the costs. But that's right now, and we see as, as healthcare costs continue to rise, there won't be much of an offset. That gap will continue to grow, and they will continue to have to pay more and more. And, and maybe, Delegate Roybach, that wash isn't as washy, if you will, <laughs> after the announcement today and the tax cuts that we see. Uh, you guys are thinking about the holistic approach here as well, aren't you? Well, obviously, it, it is a holistic approach because besides the pay increase, which was the largest pay increase in a long, long time, and the way we did it, it actually helped the people at the low end of the salaries much more because it's $2,300 across the board. So uh, that, that for some people could be as much as a 10% pay increase. And then the tax cuts, the vehicle rebates, and all that is kind of lumped together. Um, what were some of the other major alternatives that may have been considered over this past I don't know, six months, two years, as long as you've been working on this. What, what else went out the door? Well, uh, frankly, the things that went out the door, uh, going to a, a not in, something less than an 80-20 on the family plan and the, and the uh, you know, employee with children. 
that's the way a lot of people have conquered this. But we just didn't think that was fair. And we were able to get it down. I think one of the key things of this is the way we're doing the funding going forward, we were walking away from all of our salaries that are backed by either special revenue or uh, federal revenues. And so those costs for increased benefits could be passed on. Because I'll remind you, for every dollar that the employees are gonna put in, the state's gonna put in four additional new dollars. And so we were walking away from a tremendous amount of money. So the wrong way to go going forward was just to continue to put money in a direct transfer because you don't get any credit out of the federal dollars that would be pulled down or the special revenue dollars. So now we've got more funding streams coming in. One of the first things we looked at was direct transfers and that was absolutely the wrong way to do it going forward and it cost everyone more money. It, and what, what, the holistic approach, or what have I heard, the three-legged stool right. uh, quite a bit with the PEIA pay raises and tax cuts. Uh, how, how do you look at that? Well, yeah, he, he is correct when it comes to PEIA. Maybe those on the lower income, they will feel like they receive more. But then with the income tax reduction, it's the opposite. Those who earn more will have the biggest break in the biggest savings and those who earn less are getting around $100 back, $138 back. So it's kind of, you know, like he said, on the PEIA it might help the lower income, but then on the income tax it only helps those. Uh, and then with your tax rebate on your car, based on how much you pay for your car, it could be anywhere from $73 a year or a couple thousand dollars a year based on how much your car is. And I think just the bottom line is I think we need to just, we, we felt like, you know, the 26% premium increase was just such a large number. We would have, we wish that it was a way they could have phased that in over time. And I know the governor said no, no premium increases on his watch, but we just had, had to do it this year. But I think the people were okay paying an increase, but just going from zero to 26 was, didn't sit well with a lot of those people. And when he first said that, he was a Democrat too. <laughs> yeah, what do you say? Uh, well, um, maybe that's why he said it then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, because it's passed. Delegate Garcia brought up an interesting point of this PEI stabilization activity that went on a couple of years ago, talking about um, pulling revenues from certain sources every quarter, that the, uh, the, the, the Secretary of Revenue would do that. Uh, there was some credence to that, wasn't there? Well, I think that's been, our, that's been our cry for a while. Without a designated revenue source, you know, and where does it come from, right? You know, we will both agree that where does it come from? But it seems like every couple years we're here filling up a bucket to help bail us out of this PEIA. Yes, with all the changes we made, but with health care and costs continuing to be on the rise, we're going to continue to have to make changes and make adjustments. And we just, we're just hoping that they may be a little subtle when it comes to premium increases. But a designated revenue source, where does it come from? Does it come from severance taxes? I think we have, when you announce record after record surpluses, and it just seemed, the, the optics and the timing seemed a little, when you have 26% increase and you have world record surpluses, I just wish we could have taken a little bit of that surplus so not, and then we could absorb some of that 26% increase and maybe settle somewhere in the middle so it wasn't big of an apple. And I'm sure you looked at that. You looked at that well, stabilization fund. very much so. Now, I might add, over the next four years, the state is going to be putting $600 million of new money into PEIA. So there's substantial transfers here. But... What I can say, we did look at that. And we went back, because severance has been the thing that's been most often talked about. So we did a 20-year historical average of how much is severance tax bought in every year. On average, it's $323 million. So we would have been past that, if you use that as the source, by 2027, really by about 2026. 
So there was just no sustainable source of revenue that was separated that could be given towards this that was sustainable. Now, this is an obligation of the taxpayers of the state of West Virginia out of the general fund, same as salaries are, pure and simple. What do you say to all those union members and leaders that rallied and caucused outside your house door the day before this happened? Well, I, I don't expect them to be happy, but I tell you, this is a, as good a plan as we could have gotten under the circumstances that we've gotten. And if you look back historically, 12 years with no premium increases to only have a 24.7% increase, that's basically 2% a year for 12 years. So should it have been happening all along? You betcha. But it's time to get this thing stabilized because, and I will add, one third of the cost is strictly to get the access back up to where it should be. So if we didn't do that, this thing was about to collapse. That's all the time we have. Uh, straight questions, straight answers. Gentlemen, I appreciate it. Delegate Rohrbach, Delegate Scaff, thanks very much for being here today. Bob, I'll send it back to you. Thanks for that, Randy. The legislature today will end Friday night, but tune in Saturday evening for the final hours. We'll be broadcasting live from 8 p.m. until midnight when the session ends. The rest of this week, you can still tune into the legislature today at 6 p.m. Don't forget, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily on our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.